So the Lord is continuing uh, his message <coughs> through Isaiah. I guess I would prefer to have that down a little bit. Seems a, still seems a little loud. Let you guys decide, I guess. Um, he's continuing to speak uh, to the nations uh, and repeatedly, particularly with Isaiah, almost all of the prophets, there is a near and a far fulfillment. So when we're looking at this first one uh, tonight, uh, 18, and in particular as he speaks to Ethiopia, there is a fulfillment that took place as he spoke to uh, the people of Ethiopia, and that uh, certainly took place then. But then there are many more occasions throughout history where elements of this uh, transpire. And uh, as we move forward <coughs> into 19, things that are said to Egypt uh, that uh, have perhaps taken place in even recent years, uh, some uh, not that long ago. I mean, a long time from when they were said, you know, some 1,300 years uh, later, looking at, uh, you know, like 1967, and then, you know, some uh, more recently in what we uh, refer to uh, as uh, having taken place uh, not that many years ago, uh, referring to the Arab Spring. So there, there are things um, that the Lord speaks to these nations, and it's really remarkable and way worth your time to really kind of pull apart everything that's being said and see, you know, where are the applications in history? Where is it that the Lord uh, is uh, fulfilling these things, and what is it that he's seeing? Now, just having a discussion last night in a Bible study, and uh, it's important to really understand God does it uh, in these three chapters a couple times, and then in 21, he really makes the pointed um, challenge to other religions and other gods, uh, saying, you know, go ahead and prove yourself. You say you're something, uh, tell us about the future. Tell us about the past. Tell us about something you're going to do or that I'm going to do so that we could all be afraid or in awe together. And then God makes the claim, I alone am the one who can tell you these things. No other gods, no other religion does this. So I've pointed many times to the fact that the Lord, we say, you know, quoting Revelation, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the uh, the beginning and the end, the ever-present one. Well, in the Greek language, what Jesus really is saying, if you were to do sort of a transliteration, and this is my interpretation of it, is, you know, I am in the past. I am in the future. All things are the present to me. So as much as we're sitting here right now experiencing this, right, and someone asks us about this, we can tell them, right? If someone were to call us, they're not here. They could call us, and we could tell them all that we're experiencing here in this room, in our, in our existence of the present. God is all places, in all things, at all times. He can speak of the past with a present accuracy. 
He can speak of the future with a present accuracy. That's the credential that he hangs his authority on. I'm, I'm in the future. I'm in the past. I'll tell you about both with a perfect accuracy as though it is the present to me. No other religion does that. No other God does that. He's outside of time because he alone is God. You know, I've, I've heard people describe it as though, oh, God can see the future. That's, that's not what he's saying at all. God isn't saying, like you, I'm stuck in time and I have this supernatural ability to look far, far down the road and see things that are going to come. He's saying, you're the one stuck in time. I'm outside of time. I'm in the future. So when he tells us about things here with such hyper-accuracy that the critics have for centuries lost their minds, they read this and they insist, first of all, I love it when they insist, that can't be true. It's not going to happen. It won't happen. It's not possible. I love it when they do that. Because then when it transpires, they look like knuckleheads. I also like it when they reach into the past and they criticize the Word of God. Oh, look Look at these names that the Word of God is mentioning. You know, I, I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but for hundreds of years the Bible was criticized saying <coughs> that there was never a Roman leader by the name or title of Pontius Pilate. The critics had denounced the Word of God for centuries, saying this is a fictitious thing uh, that the, the Jewish Christians made up. It's all just to fit their narrative. There's no one in Roman history that ever had that title, position, name, or authority. And then they find it inscribed all over certain monuments once they're uncovered. You'll notice that they don't then publish their, you know, retraction and say, I'm very sorry, you know, we were very critical of the Bible, but now that this has been discovered, we've got egg on our face, and we just want to admit the truth, we were wrong. They don't do that. You know, the, the best they do is shut their mouth and just disappear from the scene. The worst they do is act as though that never happened, and they just move on to the next critical level. Where, where they're pointing out the next thing they think is wrong or inaccurate about the Word of God. They're all wrong. They're all inaccurate. So here, you have Isaiah chapter 18, verse 1, where the Lord says, Woe to the land overshadowed with buzzing wings, which is beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. And the idea is literally the insect population of Ethiopia. Uh, they are known for a lot of flying insects, and they have some of the biggest insects in the world. Ethiopia has some giant stuff. You know, when, when you can find, not locusts, when you can find grasshoppers that are over four inches long, that's a really big grasshopper, you know. Um, the scripture, interestingly enough, says that they are, kosher. You're allowed to eat them if you're so inclined. Um, whether you're aware of it or not, I'll just dwell on that for a moment because in many parts of the world, they are captured and dried and ground as flour. Okay, because they're almost entirely vegetation. There's very little insect there. It's all, it's all the leaves and the herbs of the field they're eating. 
So it's actually really quite healthy. I'm not a big, you know, grasshopper eater, but uh, you know, they they you can go uh, to open markets in Ethiopia to this day and buy dried grasshoppers by the pound. There there are many winged insects that they eat that you can buy by the so they're known uh, for the buzzing of their wings. It's it's a thing of their country, so, which sends ambassadors by the sea, probably improperly translated, large body of flowing water, uh, would seem more accurately to be the Nile River. Some want to insist this is the Red Sea or that it's the Mediterranean. Certain <coughs> aspects of the description don't work. Also, the fact that it says that they send the ambassadors even in vessels of reed on the waters, saying, go uh, swift messengers to the nation, tall and smooth of skin, to a people terrible from their beginning onward, a nation powerful and treading down, whose land the rivers divide. <coughs> so this cough is residual leftover from having had influenza, and I'm not contagious, I'm better now, but um, it's going to happen. I'm going to catch my breath and cough a number of times, so please forgive me on that. <coughs> Oliver will just have to edit all of those out as uh, he works on it later. Um, so several things. Uh, it's unfortunate. Uh, so far, I haven't found anybody that does a really good job um, doing some direct translation so probably beginning in verse 2, Nile River, the classic reed boats that are built and hand-fashioned there in the uh, regions of Ethiopia and Egypt. And their swift messengers literally talking about their runners. The fact that these people are incredible uh, you know, marathon runners is literally what's being referred to. The uh, your King James Version talks about a nation that is stretched, and here it properly translates tall. They're extremely tall people, uh, smooth of skin, sleek of skin would be the most accurate translation, uh, referring to that deep black, sleek look that the Ethiopians have. So this is all descriptive of them as a people. Terrible would more mean awesome. And the idea of them being incredible warriors, and historically they have been. Uh, <clears throat> one of the things that the nations that went against them in ancient history all remarked upon was how fast they move because they run. You know, they're incredibly tall, and you know, their stride, their gait. Can, can be as much as seven feet in length. So one stride, they've covered seven to eight feet on the ground. They move very rapidly. They're very fierce in battle and uh, have been known for that for four centuries. This idea of you know them treading down whose land the rivers divide. And we'll, we'll get to that a little later. The, the rivers of Ethiopia and the Nile River, its effect in the region. All the inhabitants of the world and the dwellers on the earth, when he lifts up a banner on the mountains, you see it. 
and when he blows a trumpet, you hear it. And so the Lord said to me, I will take my rest. I will look from my dwelling place like a clear like a clear heat in sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of a desert. For before the harvest, when the bud is perfect and the sour grape is ripening on the flower, he will both cut off the sprigs with pruning hooks and take away and cut down the branches. They will be left together for the mountain birds of prey and for the beasts of the earth. The birds of prey will summer on them and all the beasts of the earth will winter on them. A strange sort of unexplained shift as the Lord moves his focus over to Assyria. If you just take chapter 18 out of context, the passage doesn't tell you that. Keeping in mind that all these previous chapters have been talking about the coming threat of Assyria. So everybody is scared of this rising power of Assyria that's going to descend out of the north. And it's going to come and it's going to cause this tremendous fear and everybody's going to be concerned about you know these great warriors of Ethiopia you know all the description of them as a people and they're going to be focused on the coming invasion and it's going to be this massive force and suddenly it's just going to be gone that massive invading force is going to be destroyed and be food for the birds for two years in fact 185,000 Assyrians killed in a single night by the Holy Spirit, by the Spirit of God, laid waste. An army that you know was so feared that no one dared even lift any kind of resistance to it, shows up on Israel's doorstep and is struck dead by the Lord. All oh, the speculations. You know, the wild speculations about, oh, this never happened. And then, you know, massive grave locations and bones scattered everywhere and archaeological finds of massive cash stores of weaponry. And, yeah, their army was wiped out in a single night by God. Oh, well, then it must have been a disease. You know, they came into the region and were, you know, not accustomed to certain microbial things. And, you know, give me a break, man. They're from the region. It's, it's not like they went to the other side of the world and encountered smallpox, right? They have been dealing with these people, these cultures, all of this region for all of their history. They show up to contend with God's people, and God says, enough. You know, the king is in a place where he's trying to follow me, and I have spoken by my prophet, and I'm going to judge the Assyrian army. And they're going to cease to exist. You know, Ethiopia, afraid, fearful, worried, formidable army, yet unable to contend with Assyria. Don't worry about it. They're just going to be bird food. You know, you'll have all of these vultures and ravens and all these other animals <coughs> that will come and feast on them, you know, summer on them, and the following winter they'll be able to feast on them. In that time, they present will be brought to the Lord of hosts 
from the people tall and smooth of skin, and from a people terrible from their beginning onward, a nation powerful and treading down, whose land the rivers divide, through the place of the name of the Lord of hosts, to Mount Zion. So, in the local fulfillment, when the Assyrian army was wiped out, the Ethiopian people had a very (coughs) firm understanding that the God of Israel had done that. Everyone locally understood this was a miraculous event. There was no human intervention. There was no natural explanation. There was only the supernatural. The Shenekareb had come and made his great proclamations against Israel and how they were going to destroy them. And there was no hope and everybody was going to perish and die. And in the end, wiped out. Ethiopia was so impressed that they came and made great offerings to the Lord. They made great provision to the people of Israel. They, they were so uh, enamored with God and His capability of doing this. So there's all of that local fulfillment where the Ethiopian people were deeply moved by God's power. I mean, imagine when you are <coughs> trying to negotiate all the alliances you can militarily and politically against the one world superpower that everyone knows this is a complete impossibility. It doesn't even matter what kind of military coalition we put together, we are not going to be able to resist this army. They are going to throttle us. There's not a blessed thing we can do. And suddenly they're gone. Everybody just kind of is left in that knee-jerk moment of what in the world just happened? And the word comes quickly. The Assyrians spoke blasphemous things against God and God dealt with them. And the people of Ethiopia are moved. Now, I tend to read a lot of sort of abstract and fringe stuff. So I just want to be very clear that what I'm about to describe to you is one of those things. It's not verifiable. (laughs) I wouldn't try to have you, you know, hang your hat on this in any way. There are those that say that Ethiopia as a country has currently the Ark of the Covenant. That it is hidden within their country. You may recall Acts chapter 8. You have the Ethiopian eunuch that comes and he's ministered to by Philip receives the Lord, he's baptized, Philip is caught up away from him, and he returns uh, to the queen of Ethiopia. And Christianity, this is a historic fact, Christianity is established there in Acts chapter 8, even to the present day. There's a very strong Christian presence in Ethiopia to this day. There are those that say that just prior to the fall of Jerusalem, Many of the articles of the priesthood and worship, including the Ark of the Covenant, were smuggled out of Israel to Ethiopia and have been hidden amongst the Christians inside Ethiopia since then. And they will be returned. And so there are those that say that you know, at that time, a present will be brought to the Lord of hosts. They say that that's 
what it is. Now, there are those that say they've seen the Ark of the Covenant in Ethiopia. And when asked to describe it, they say that it is a wooden box that has very little gold leaf overlaying it with a solid gold lid, which would be an accurate description of what was constructed. Because the original Ark of the Covenant was made of acacia wood and overlaid with gold with a solid lid of gold. Again, all speculation. Okay, For all we know, the Ark of the Covenant is in heaven. We have no idea where that thing is. And the, I don't bring it up so that you can begin to wonder and create all kinds of speculation and build some kind of faith and hope in that. I, quite the opposite. Okay? You're going to run into this at some point, especially if you go home and you do any digging on Isaiah chapter 18. The last thing in the world I want you to do is you know, hang any portion of your faith on something that can't be confirmed, especially if later something might refute it. You know, you, you've walked along, you know, searching for the Ark of the Covenant or Noah's Ark or have Bigfoot or I don't know what, and suddenly, right, it, it's proven to be false or not. Let's, let's stick to what the Scripture wants us to understand about these sorts of things. Let's, let's stick to what is plainly seen. Now, there is a future fulfillment in this where once Jesus Christ is seated on his throne, the nations of the world will come and worship him. And in particular, it seems to imply not only did they in the past worship him, but as a nation, Ethiopia is going to be one of those nations, especially as we move through the next two chapters, who during the millennial reign, they freely come and they're anxious to worship Jesus Christ in his capital city of Jerusalem there, seated upon his throne. So they'll bring a present, you know, perhaps material gifts, but definitely their hearts will be rendered to Jesus Christ as they bow in service to him. Now verse 19, or chapter 19 rather. <coughs> the burden against Egypt. Behold, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and will come into Egypt. The idols of Egypt will totter at his presence and the heart of Egypt will melt in its midst. So certainly that has happened in the past when Moses came and demanded that the people of Israel be released from their captivity in Egypt, each one of the plagues that came actually was against something that the Egyptians themselves worshipped. Uh, right up until you get to, you know, even, you know, their, their most prominent god was Ra, the sun god, and they experienced blackness for three days. Uh, so black uh, that the scripture says it could be felt and that the people did not rise from their beds for three days. Uh, we took the kids uh, on a class trip to a place in New York called Howe's Caverns. And uh, 
you are hundreds of feet underground in caves. And uh, once you're at the end, because there's a lake in there, and we're now on boats in the lake, right at the head of a waterfall in a cave. <laughs> Is that a pleasant thought for you? And they just will forewarn you, now we're going to shut the lights off. And they kill the lights, and it is so black. I mean, you can put your hand in front of your face, and there's nothing there. It's so black. Immediately, people have outcries of fear. You know, I mean, you know, they 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 have told us the longest they've ever been able to leave the lights off without people coming completely unglued is a few seconds. It's so incredibly black. The nation of uh, Egypt worshiping all these different gods, the Lord is saying, I'm going to make their gods totter, topple, fall down. And they're going to have to be in subject to me. <coughs> They'll melt in their midst. I will set Egyptian against Egyptians. So civil war. This has happened on a few different occasions, I bring it up because um, the Arab Spring that took place <coughs> in the early 2000s, uh, very fitting uh, to what's being described here. Uh, Egypt had uh, and Libya had had for a fairly decent period of time, over 30 years, a relatively Western friendly leader. Now, I get it. I'm not trying to promote anything there. Uh, he himself had his own levels of, you know, tyrannical behavior and sinfulness. But compared to what they swapped out for, uh, what they got once they got rid of their, uh, you know, Western friendly leader and ended up with uh, the Islamic, uh, you know, tyrants that took over, uh, it was not an even trade. And, and it's somewhat described here. So civil war, Egyptian against Egyptian. Everyone will fight against his brother and everyone against his neighbor. City against city. Kingdom against kingdom. The spirit of Egypt will fail in its midst. I will destroy their council. And they will consult the idols and the charmers and the mediums and the sorcerers. And the Egyptians I will give into the hand of a cruel master. And a fierce king will rule over them, says the Lord, the Lord of hosts. It's happened in the past, but what <coughs> they have most recently experienced is probably the most fitting fulfillment in their history of these verses. From verse 2 down to chapter 4, is probably most aptly fulfilled in the Arab Spring that has transpired in recent history. Um, if if you're thinking, well, you know, I don't know if uh, you know Isaiah was looking that far forward with his prophecy to see all the way to today. I'll remind you that back when we were in chapter 13, those things were not fulfilled until Saddam Hussein descended into Kuwait and then the coalition of nations gathered into Saudi Arabia and then went forward to attack him and drive him back into Baghdad where then ultimately the second wave of invasion came 
and fulfilled all of those things we saw written in Isaiah chapter 13. So God fulfills things in his own time. And again, there are many things in the scripture that are still ahead of us to be fulfilled, some of them here. In verse 5, it says, The waters will fail from the sea, and the river will be wasted and dried up. This is the the Egyptian river. That's the Nile. Okay. Now, <clears throat> there are those even to this day that want to say, I'm going to describe the Aswan Dam and the destruction of the Nile and the Nile Delta, the lower Aswan, the upper Aswan, their developments and how it has affected ecologically uh, this region. There are those to this day that want to insist, well, we don't know for certain if you know the Aswan Dam is actually the fulfillment of all of these things. Well, how about this? Every single thing written in this passage we're about to read was fulfilled by the building of the Aswan Dam and the destruction of the Nile Delta. So if you can't accept that, then, well, that's your problem. So verse 5, the waters will fail from the sea, and the rivers will be wasted and dried up. The rivers will be turned foul. The brooks of defense will be emptied and dried up. The reeds and the rushes will wither. The papyrus reed by the river, by the mouth of the river, and everything sown by the river will wither, be drawn away, and be no more. The fishermen also will mourn, and those will lament who cast hooks into the river, and they will languish who spread nets on the water. Moreover, those who work in fine flax and those who weave fine fabric will be ashamed, and its foundation will be broken, and all who make wages will be troubled of soul. Wages uh, by the Nile uh, River. So the lower Aswan and the upper Aswan <coughs> were built 1967 and then later 76. The development of these dams, the um, and there were different timelines along the way, but the ultimate fulfillment of these things, the the initial goal was that the water and the energy were what they were after. So dam up the Nile and use the water to irrigate the nation. Uh, so as it worked, uh, the Nile River uh, flowing into the sea carried all of this silt with it, massive river flow and, and loose sand. So it carries the silt very easily and very freely. As it reaches the sea and meets that free-flowing body of water, it dumps all of the sand. So the sand on the bottom builds up. If you're familiar with Nile you know, or, or Delta construction, that builds up. Well, suddenly now there's like a wall of sand underneath the water that the river can no longer flow through, so it has to change course. So the river will shift to the west or to the east, to go around the delta. It'll carve a path through that, bringing new life and fresh water into those directions, whichever way that it shifts. And it goes in different cycles, depending on what river, you know, Mississippi or others you're talking about. You know, some go in three-year cycles, seven, 10, 20-year cycles, 
where the river is shifting east to west to go around the deposit of silt that it's putting into whatever sea or body of water it's depositing into. For the Nile, as the floodwaters came, that whole delta region would flood out. Fresh water spilling out into just thousands of acres of farmland. Incredibly fertile delta. All kinds of fishing. Brackish water is uh, some of the most uh, you know, avid fishing ground you'll ever find. You're, you're going to find you know, salt and freshwater fish there as the sea and the, the river mix together. You're going to have all kinds of predatory fish that come in searching for the freshwater fish. So you know, all the fishermen love to be in that brackish condition of the estuary. Well, <clears throat> everybody decides, well, we need to get this water out into the rest of Egypt, not just at the delta. It's, it, you know, so the delta's kind of hogging the water up, and, and the delta's also difficult. So we'll just dam it up, and we'll divert the water for irrigation out through. Well, what happens is the delta doesn't build up. And so now the fresh water doesn't carry out into any of the delta region. And, and what they didn't calculate for was then the seawater begins to inundate. So a region that you know previously had cycled through from being saltwater brackish to freshwater and back and forth suddenly becomes just saltwater. Uh, in particular, the failing of the reeds and the papyrus reeds uh, there's a particular snail that nests in the root system and on the base of all the reeds that the shifting of the fresh water would wash them away. Well, now nothing washes them away. They burrow in, they kill the vegetation, the place is turning into a wasteland. You know, the fishing industry is dying, the farming industry is dying. They're calculating right now that the areas that they've been capable of irrigating with the dammed up water are less than 10% of what they lost in the rich Nile Delta that was so fertile for its farming and every other area of industry. They've, they have accomplished less, less than 10% of a payback for themselves. So power production is about all they got out of it. And even that, uh, some speculate, and you know, I'm, I guess I'm being overly patriotic, but just keep in mind, this, this was a Russian plan. Okay. The Russians were literally behind this whole, you know, Aswan Dam. They were going to help Egypt out and do this whole thing. And in the end, they've destroyed the Nile Delta. And, and in fact, now today, they're actually talking about what are they going to do? Are they, are they going to get rid of the Aswan dams in order to you know, go through some effort to restore uh, the delta, which you know, may be a good idea. But certainly, as the Lord has said right here, the destruction of the delta took place. The flax and the harvests that would take place, you know, the, the wheat and grains that uh, they would be able to get from the, the delta building up. And now the fresh water was right there for irrigation into the farmland. It's no longer there. When God declares a thing, thousands of years may pass. Uh, but it's going to be fulfilled. And, you know, sometimes people try to just, you know, 
relegate that to the spiritual. Oh, right. Well, you know, Jesus Christ talked about his second coming and, you know, someday his kingdom will be set up. But are we really looking for a literal kingdom? I mean, maybe it's just the kingdom in the heart. And now you've got all millennialism that has, you know, got people thinking that maybe we're looking for the wrong thing. Literal fulfillment. Destruction of the Nile Delta. Thousands of years pass, and then what God has said literally takes place. I, I love it. I love the fact that God does that. You know, Not that he is the one who caused these things to happen, <clears throat> but he tells them centuries, millennia, before it takes place of something that's going to be an absolute tragedy. You know, much like in the New Testament, Jesus says, I tell you these things beforehand so that when they transpire, then you may believe. He, ha he hangs his authority on prophecy. These people that, you know, say, oh, well, you, you, you know, you have faith. You just, you, you mindlessly believe. No. No, God is putting evidence in front of us. It's our responsibility to examine these things and to see whether they be true or not now verse 11 says surely the princes of zoan are fools so those within egypt that are the ruling party pharaoh's wise counselors give foolish counsel how do you say to pharaoh i am the son of the wise the son of the ancient kings where are they where are your wise sons let them tell you now. Let them know what the Lord of hosts has proposed against Egypt. The princes of Zoan have become fools. The princes of Noph are deceived. They have also deluded Egypt. Those who are <coughs> the mainstay of its tribes, the Lord has mingled a perverse spirit in her midst. And they have caused Egypt to err in her work. As a drunken man staggers in his vomit, neither will there be any work for Egypt, which the head or the tail, palm branches or bulrushes may do. <coughs> God is pronouncing upon Egypt this catastrophic judgment of, you know, they've got the mindset of, okay, Assyria is wiped out. We're going to be the world power. We're going to dominate the region. We've got military. We've got wise counselors. We'll be able to rise up and become something special. Assyria's faded off the scene, but we're going to be able to step into the gap and really show the world we mean business. And God says, you're meaningless. You're not going to come to anything. And that's exactly how it transpires. You know, great claims yes i don't know have you uh I've, my, my uh, forms of entertainment are strange um i uh I, I like to watch fail army on youtube um you know people that uh try to do ridiculous stunts and wreck themselves i don't know why it's uh, so fun for me but it is and um there's a thing called bully fail where um Bullies, literally, are, you know, going to beat somebody up and the dweeb just knocks them out. You know, somebody somebody is making bold claims. One of my favorites is Ninja Fail. 
Um, it's as dumb as it sounds. You know, this person says, you know, I'm going to split this board with my head, you know, and like knocks themselves out cold. Um, it's, I don't know why it's so funny for me. Just if, if you've built yourself up in a magnificent display of pride and then you wreck yourself, there's just like an added level of funny to me. Uh, you know, forgive me. You can pray for me. I'm, I'm cynical this way. <clears throat> Egypt making its great proclamations. Uh, well, we're going to be something. You wait. You wait until we come to nothing. And that's just what happens to them. God says, your wise counselors are foolish. You've got nothing. You have nothing uh, for which you are going to be able to fulfill these claims. 16, in that day, Egypt will be like a woman and will be afraid in fear because of the waving of the hand of the Lord of hosts, which he waves over it. <coughs> Ladies, uh, that isn't to just insult the gender. The idea is, you know, that generally speaking, it's a gross generalization, uh, but, you know, ladies can sometimes be more fearful and more easily startled. And, you know, the idea that, oh, this great military nation with all of its wise counsel, you know, somebody's going to, God is going to wave his hand in front of them and they're going to freak out and startle and screech like a girl and run away. And that's, that's literally how it's going to end up transpiring. They have no strength within themselves. The land of Judah will be a terror to Egypt. Everyone who makes mention of it will be afraid in himself because of the counsel of the Lord of hosts, which he has determined against it. On that day, five cities in the land of Egypt will speak the language of Canaan and swear by the Lord of hosts. One will be called the city of destruction. On that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its borders. What a wonderful thought that Egypt and all of its rebellion and all of its Islamic state is someday going to come to the place of surrender to the point that they have locations set up to honor the Lord and worship the Lord. It will be called the city of destruction. This place will have a pillar in its border it will be a for a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they will cry to the Lord because of their oppressors, and he will send them a Savior and a mighty one, and he will deliver them. Then the Lord will be known in Egypt, and the Egyptians <coughs> will know the Lord. And in that day, and I will make sacrifice and offering, yes, they will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. And the Lord will strike Egypt, and he will strike and heal it. And they will return to the Lord, and he will be entreated by them and heal them. <coughs> if you're thinking, how could Egypt return to the Lord? When were they ever with the Lord? Keep in mind that Mary and Joseph and Jesus fled to Egypt and hid there for a time. The Savior himself came out of Egypt to return to the land of Nazareth and become the Savior of the world. And that's part of their history. 
that they were a protective refuge for our Messiah for a period of time. That's kind of cool. And when he takes his throne, there's going to be a recognition. Not even so much by them. The world is going to recognize Egypt as having served Jesus Christ. I, I like this. It's just, it's just a cool thing that uh, the Savior himself fled there, found refuge there, <coughs> and that they themselves as a people, the Lord has struck them. But he is also going to deliver them. and He's going to lift them up. And they're going to worship him. And they're going to set up a pillar and a monument. You know, think about it. Here they are, people, in their current state today. At some point, not too far in the distant future, Jesus Christ is going to set up his throne on earth. And word is going to go, and they're going to remember. We had the Messiah amongst us. And it's going to become a thing of national pride to them. We housed the Messiah for a period of time. He was amongst us. He and his family lived with us. He emerged from us in order to bring his gospel message to the world. Okay. Claim to fame, your 15 minutes of popularity. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrian will come into Egypt, and the Egyptian into Assyria, and the Egyptian will serve with the Assyrian. In that day, Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the land. That's surely going to require a miracle for all of these nations to be joined together as though they were one in their function and one in their worship and their adoration of God, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hand, and Israel, my inheritance. Now, what, a, what a wonderful thing, you know, for all of the desires of the people of the world to bring world peace. It is coming, but it's coming at the hand of Jesus Christ. It's a great thing to know. And honestly, you know, you, when you think about uh, like how far away, how long, how much difficulty. Well, honestly, you guys, right now, if the Lord hit the switch, it could happen as quickly as seven years from today. Now, there's catastrophic events between here and that finish line. Don't get me wrong. But it could be very close at hand could be very close at hand to see these things fulfilled. So pray. Pray that the Lord would accomplish his work. In the, in the year that Tartan came from Ashdod, when Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent him, and he fought against Ashdod and took it. Now we're going to see some description here. This is one of those locations where the critics of the scripture renounced every element of what was written here. Never was there Tartan. Never was there Ashdod. Never was there Sargon. They, they, you know, the, the biblical writers made these names up in order to fit their narrative. Well, the first one to fall was Ashdod. Okay, well, fine. We've found a location that was Ashdod. Great, we'll give you that one. And then Tartan. Oh, well, okay. Tartan existed. We just didn't know about that. But surely Sargon is a made-up name. Okay, there was a Sargon also. One by one. It's, it's amazing to me. Literally in three successive waves, uh, the critics were forced to shut their mouths. And again, no printed retractions. <laughs> Nobody you know, republished their article. 
to make sure that the world knew they were wrong. They just like to run their mouths and criticize the Word of God. When they look foolish, they just sort of skulk away into obscurity. At the same time, the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and remove the sackcloth from your body and take your sandals off your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. Now, before you think of uh, the prophet walking around without any clothing on, that's not what's being described. Okay, It would be more like the prophet walking around in his pajamas. Okay, it's 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 the sort of thing like, uh, you know, you run into the prophet downtown and he's only got this fine linen ephod on and he's, you know, he's he's like in a nightgown and you're kind of like, oh, well, good afternoon. You know, it just, it, you know, it's more common today to run into somebody in Walmart in their pajamas. You know, it happens. Uh, but, you know, there was a time in our culture where it was very abnormal. Okay to run into somebody walking around in, you know, their house coat. Um, that's sort of the idea here. He's been wearing this camel's hair. And, uh, you know, everyone <coughs> knew him as, you know, the prophet who had this burly sort of cloak upon him that they wore the camel's hair inward. If you ever get the opportunity to touch a camel or camel's hide please do so no i mean it like rub your hand in it live camel or camel skin oily smelly sticky bristly uncomfortable the thoughts of that hair straight against your skin i mean if you weren't an angry prophet when you started wear that for a year or two and you're going to be grumpy you know what i'm saying it's, it's not a comfortable outfit. And the Lord says to him, take that off and just wear the ephod so that you get the picture, okay? This isn't a stretch at all. Remember when David was bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into Israel and they're singing, you know, lift up your gates, lift up your head. And, you know, everyone's expecting and in comes and he's, he's dancing and shouting and leaping and his wife Michael is later angry with him saying you uncovered yourself he, he wasn't naked he, he was wearing the linen ephod so so it's the 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 pure white undergarment is what he was wearing and he was joyously you know proclaiming the arrival of the Lord same thing here with the prophet get rid of the sandals get rid of the camel's hair the, the clothing of mourning, the clothing of agitation, get rid of that. And, you know, not that, not that it's going to be a picture of comfort and ease. I want it to be a startling image to the people that see you. Like, oh, you're only wearing an ephod. My, you know, it just, it's going to make them uncomfortable. That you're just wearing your undergarment out in public. The prophet is now just going to be wearing his undergarment. And it, it's going to be the sort of thing like you're you have an awkward time trying to have a conversation with him because he's just, he's just wearing an ephod, you know. It just seems very awkward to everyone. And here's why: Then the Lord <coughs> said, "Just as my servant Isaiah was walking naked and barefoot three years for a sign and a wonder against Egypt and Ethiopia, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptians." 
as prisoners and the Ethiopians in captivities, as excuse me, as captives, young and old, naked and barefoot, with their buttocks uncovered, to the shame of Egypt. Then they shall be afraid and ashamed of Ethiopia, their expectation in Egypt, their glory. And the inhabitants or the inhabitant of their territory will say in that day, Surely such is our expectation. Wherever we flee for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria, and how shall we escape? So for all of their plans, Ethiopia and its great military prowess and its sleek runners and all of its capability, and Egypt with all of its military capabilities and its uh, you know, wise pseudo-counselors, uh, the wipeout of Assyria has come, but they're going to rebuild. And they're going to come. And they're going to invade. And they're going to take all of northern Israel. And they're going to take all of Ethiopia. And they're going to take all of Egypt. Why? Because the Lord has said so. And when they're finally diminished, Babylon is going to take their place. And they'll be the world ruler. And they'll come in and they'll finish off Judah and the south. Nobody's going to escape the judgment of the Lord. And that echoes all the way through to us today. As our nation is this week pitching itself deeper into sin than we've ever been. So sick a people to kill our children the way we do. So sick a sinful nation to go down the roads we have gone down. No one escapes God's judgment. Well, those that repent do. Those that surrender and render their hearts to Him do. Even within nations that are conquered. Those that will bow their knee. Those that will humble their hearts. They may go through the adversity with the people of their nation, but they experience the protective provision of God. Humility, right? A broken and contrite heart. I will not reject. God wants re repentance. He wants revival. He wants restoration. Powerful message to powerful nations. And God's fulfillment came about for each of them. And there, therein is the story, right? We get to look back through the corridors of history and know all of these things were fulfilled. You know, even stuff that's going on today around us. God will not be mocked. Whatever you sow, you're going to reap. So we'll pick up with chapter 21 next week. Why don't we stand and we'll pray. The gracious fulfillment of God's word. Father, we thank you very much for your love, for your work, for your blessing in our lives. And we pray that you would minister to us. Help us to be men and women who are surrendered to you, regardless of what we see going on in our nation, that we would be people who waited upon you. Help us to study your word. Help us to be in fellowship with you daily. Lord, we want to see your kingdom come and your will be done in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.